Section 16 of Great Pirate Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Great Pirate Stories by Various. Edited by Joseph Lewis French. Section 16. The Terrible Ladrones by Richard Glasspool. On the 17th of September, 1809, the Honourable Company ship, Marquis of Ely, anchored under the island of Sam Chow in China, about twelve English miles from Macau, where I was ordered to proceed in one of our cutters to procure a pilot, and also to land the purser with the packet. I left the ship at 5 p.m., with seven men under my command, well armed. It blew a fresh gale from the northeast. We arrived at Macau at 9 p.m., where I delivered the packet to Mr. Roberts, and sent the men with the boat sails to sleep under the company's factory, and left the boat in charge of one of the compradores' men. During the night, the gale increased. At half-past three in the morning, I went to the beach, and found the boat on shore half-filled with water, in consequence of the man having left her. I called the people, and bailed her out, found she was considerably damaged and very leaky. At half-past five a.m., the ebb-tide making, we left Macau with vegetables for the ship. One of the Compradores men, who spoke English, went with us for the purpose of piloting the ship to Lintin, as the mandarines, in consequence of a late disturbance at Macau, would not grant permission for regular pilots. I had every reason to expect the ship in the roads, as she was preparing to get under way when we left her. But on our rounding Cabaretta Point, we saw her five or six miles to leeward, under way, standing on the starboard tack. It was then blowing fresh at northeast, bore up and stood towards her, when about a cable's length to windward of her she tacked. We hauled our wind and stood after her. A hard squall then coming on, with a strong tide and heavy swell against us, we drifted fast to leeward, and the weather being hazy, we soon lost sight of the ship, struck our masts and endeavoured to pull, finding our efforts useless, set a reefed foresail and mizzen, and stood towards a country ship at anchor under the land to leeward of Cabaretta Point, when within a quarter of a mile of her she weighed and made sail, leading us in a very critical situation, having no anchor, and drifting bodily on the rocks to leeward, struck the masts, after four or five hours hard pulling, succeeded in clearing them. At this time not a ship in sight. The weather clearing up, we saw a ship to leeward, hull down, shipped our masts, and made sail towards her. She proved to be the Honourable Company ship Glatton. We made signals to her with our handkerchiefs at the masthead. She unfortunately took no notice of them, but tacked and stood from us. Our situation was now truly distressing. Night closing fast, with a threatening appearance, blowing fresh, with hard rain and a heavy sea, our boat very leaky, without a compass, anchor or provisions, and drifting fast on a lee shore, surrounded with dangerous rocks, and inhabited by the most barbarous pirates. I close-reefed my sails, and kept tack and tack till daylight, when we were happy to find we had drifted very little to leeward of our situation in the evening. The night was very dark, with constant hard squalls and heavy rain. Tuesday the 19th, no ships in sight. About ten o'clock in the morning it fell calm, with very hard rain and a heavy swell. Struck our masts and pulled, 
not being able to see the land, steered by the swell. When the weather broke up, found we had drifted several miles to leeward. During the calm, a fresh breeze bringing up, made sail and endeavoured to reach the weather shore, and anchor with six muskets we had lashed together for that purpose. Finding the boat made no way against the swelling tide, bore up for a bay to leeward, and anchored about 1 a.m., close under the land in five or six fathoms water, blowing fresh with hard rain. Wednesday the 20th, at daylight, supposing the flood tide making, weighed and stood over to the weather land, but found we were drifting fast to leeward. About ten o'clock perceived two Chinese boats steering for us, bore up and stood towards them, and made signals to induce them to come within hail. On nearing them they bore up, and passed to leeward of the islands. The Chinese we had in the boat advised me to follow them, and he would take us to Macau by the leeward passage. I expressed my fears of being taken by the ladrones. Our ammunition being wet, and the muskets rendered useless, we had nothing to defend ourselves with but cutlasses, and in too distressed a situation to make much resistance with them, having been constantly wet, and eaten nothing but a few green oranges for three days. As our present situation was a hopeless one, and the man assured me there was no fear of encountering any ladrones, I complied with his request, and stood into leeward of the islands, where we found the water much smoother, and apparently a direct passage to Macau. We continued pulling and sailing all day. At six o'clock in the evening, I discovered three large boats at anchor in a bay to leeward. On seeing us, they weighed and made sail towards us. The Chinese said they were ladrones, and that if they captured us, they would most certainly put us all to death. Finding they gained fast on us, struck the masts, and pulled head to wind for five or six hours. The tide turning against us, anchored close under the land to avoid being seen. Soon after we saw the boats pass us to leeward. Thursday the 21st, at daylight, the flood-making, weighed and pulled along shore in great spirits, expecting to be at Macau in two or three hours, as by the Chinese account it was not above six or seven miles distant. After pulling a mile or two, perceived several people on shore, standing close to the beach. They were armed with pikes and lances. I ordered the interpreter to hail them, and asked the most direct passage to Macau. They said if we came on shore they would inform us. Not liking their hostile appearance, I did not think proper to comply with the request. Saw a large fleet of boats at anchor close under the opposite shore. Our interpreter said they were fishing boats, and that by going there we should not only get provisions, but a pilot also to take us to Macau. I bore up, and on nearing them perceived there were some large vessels very full of men, and mounted with several guns. I hesitated to approach nearer, but the Chinese, assuring me they were mandarin junks and salt boats, we stood close to one of them, and asked the way to Macau. They gave no answer, but made some signs to us to go on shore. We passed on, and a large rowboat pulled after us. She soon came alongside, when about twenty savage-looking villains, who were stowed at the bottom of the boat, leaped on board us. They were armed with a short sword in each hand, one of which they laid on our necks, and the other pointed to our breasts, keeping their eyes fixed on their officer, waiting his signal to cut or desist. Seeing we were incapable of making any resistance, he sheathed his sword, and the others immediately followed his example. They then dragged us into their boat, and carried us on board one of their junks, 
with the most savage demonstrations of joy, and as we supposed, to torture and put us to a cruel death. When on board the junk, they searched all our pockets, took the handkerchiefs from our necks, and brought heavy chains to chain us to the guns. At this time a boat came, and took me, with one of my men and the interpreter, on board the chief's vessel. I was then taken before the chief. He was seated on deck, in a large chair, dressed in purple silk, with a black turban on. He appeared to be about thirty years of age, a stout, commanding-looking man. He took me by the coat, and drew me close to him, then questioned the interpreter very strictly, asking who we were, and what was our business in that part of the country. I told him to say we were Englishmen in distress, having been four days at sea without provisions. This he would not credit, but said we were bad men, and that he would put us all to death, and then ordered some men to put the interpreter to the torture until he confessed the truth. Upon this occasion, a ladrone, who had been once to England and spoke a few words of English, came to the chief, and told him we were really Englishmen, and that we had plenty of money, adding that the buttons on my coat were gold. The chief then ordered us some coarse brown rice, of which we made a tolerable meal, having eaten nothing for nearly four days except a few green oranges. During our repast, a number of ladrones crowded round us, examining our clothes and hair, and giving us every possible annoyance. Several of them brought swords, and laid them on our necks, making signs that they would soon take us on shore, and cut us in pieces, which I am sorry to say was the fate of some hundreds during my captivity. I was now summoned before the chief, who had been conversing with the interpreter. He said I must write to my captain, and tell him, if he did not send a hundred thousand dollars for our ransom, in ten days he would put us all to death. In vain did I assure him it was useless writing, unless he would agree to take a much smaller sum, saying we were all poor men, and the most we could possibly raise would not exceed two thousand dollars. Finding that he was much exasperated at my expostulations, I embraced the offer of writing to inform my commander of our unfortunate situation, though there appeared not the least probability of relieving us. They said the letter should be conveyed to Macao in a fishing boat, which would bring an answer in the morning. A small boat accordingly came alongside and took the letter. About six o'clock in the evening they gave us some rice and a little salt fish, which we ate, and they made signs for us to lay down on the deck to sleep. But such numbers of ladrones were constantly coming from different vessels to see us and examine our clothes and hair, they would not allow us a moment's quiet. They were particularly anxious for the buttons of my coat, which were new, and as they supposed gold. I took it off, and laid it on the deck to avoid being disturbed by them. It was taken away in the night, and I saw it on the next day stripped of its buttons. About nine o'clock a boat came and hailed the chief's vessel. He immediately hoisted his mainsail, and the fleet weighed apparently in great confusion. They worked to windward all night, and part of the next day, and anchored about one o'clock in a bay under the island of Lantau, where the head admiral of the Drones was lying at anchor, with about two hundred vessels, and a Portuguese brig they had captured a few days before, and murdered the captain and part of the crew. Saturday the 23rd, early in the morning, a fishing boat came to the fleet to inquire if they had captured an European boat. Being answered in the affirmative, they came to the vessel I was in. One of them spoke a few words of English, and told me he had a ladron pass, and was sent by Captain K in search of us. I was rather surprised to find he had no letter, he appeared to be well acquainted with the chief, 
and remained in his cabin smoking opium and playing cards all the day in the evening i was summoned with the interpreter before the chief he questioned us in a much milder tone saying he now believed we were englishmen a people he wished to be friendly with and that if our captain would lend him seventy thousand dollars till he returned from his cruise up the river he would repay him and send us all to macao i assured him it was useless writing on those terms and unless our ransom was speedily settled the english fleet would sail and render our enlargement altogether ineffectual he remained determined and said if it were not sent he would keep us and make us fight or put us to death i accordingly wrote and gave my letter to the man belonging to the boat before mentioned he said he could not return with an answer in less than five days the chief now gave me the letter i wrote when first taken i have never been able to ascertain his reasons for detaining it but suppose he dared not negotiate for our ransom without orders from the head admiral who i understood was sorry at our being captured he said the english ships would join the mandarines and attack them he told the chief that captured us to dispose of us as he pleased monday the twenty fourth it blew a strong gale with constant hard rain we suffered much from the cold and wet being obliged to remain on deck with no covering but an old mat which was frequently taken from us in the night by the ladrones who were on watch during the night the portuguese who were left in the brig murdered the ladrones that were on board of her cut the cables and fortunately escaped through the darkness of the night i have since been informed they ran her on shore near macao tuesday the twenty fifth at daylight in the morning the fleet amounting to about five hundred sail of different sizes weighed to proceed on their intended cruise up the rivers to levy contributions on the towns and villages it is impossible to describe what were my feelings at this critical time having received no answers to my letters and the fleet under way to sail hundreds of miles up a country never visited by europeans there to remain probably for many months which would render all opportunities of negotiating for our enlargement totally ineffectual as the only method of communication is by boats that have a pass from the ladrones and they dare not venture above twenty miles from macao being obliged to come and go in the night to avoid the mandarines and if these boats should be detected in having any intercourse with the ladrones they are immediately put to death and all their relations though they had not joined in the crime share in the punishment in order that not a single person of their family should be left to imitate their crimes or revenge their death this severity renders communication both dangerous and expensive no boat would venture out for less than a hundred spanish dollars wednesday the twenty sixth at daylight we passed in sight of our ships at anchor under the island of chunpo the chief then called me pointed to the ships and told the interpreter to tell us to look at them for we should never see them again about noon we entered a river to the westward of the bogue three or four miles from the entrance we passed a large town situated on the side of a beautiful hill which is tributary to the ladrones the inhabitants saluted them with songs as they passed the fleet now divided into two squadrons the red and the black and sailed up different branches of the river at midnight the division we were in anchored close to an immense hill on the top of which a number of fires were burning which at daylight i perceived proceeded from a chinese camp at the back of the hill was a most beautiful town surrounded by water and embellished with groves of orange trees the chop house custom house and a few cottages were immediately plundered and burned down most of the inhabitants however escaped to the camp 
The ladrones now prepared to attack the town with a formidable force, collected in rowboats from the different vessels. They sent a messenger to the town, demanding a tribute of $10,000 annually, saying if these terms were not complied with, they would land, destroy the town, and murder all the inhabitants, which they would certainly have done had the town laid in a more advantageous situation for their purpose. But being placed out of the reach of their shot, they allowed them to come to terms. The inhabitants agreed to pay $6,000, which they were to collect by the time of our return down the river. This finesse had the desired effect, for during our absence they mounted a few guns on a hill, which commanded the passage, and gave us in lieu of the dollars a warm salute on our return. October the 1st, the fleet weighed in the night, dropped by the tide up the river, and anchored very quietly before a town surrounded by a thick wood. Early in the morning the ladrones assembled in rowboats and landed, then gave a shout and rushed into the town, sword in hand. The inhabitants fled to the adjacent hills, in numbers apparently superior to the ladrones. We may easily imagine to ourselves the horror with which these miserable people must be seized, on being obliged to leave their homes, and everything dear to them. It was a most melancholy sight to see women in tears, clasping their infants in their arms, and imploring mercy for them from those brutal robbers. The old and the sick, who were unable to fly or to make resistance, were either made prisoners or most inhumanly butchered. The boats continued passing and repassing from the junks to the shore, in quick succession, laden with booty, and the men besmeared with blood. Two hundred and fifty women and several children were made prisoners and sent on board different vessels. They were unable to escape with the men, owing to that abominable practice of cramping their feet. Several of them were not able to move without assistance. In fact, they might all be said to totter rather than walk. Twenty of these poor women were sent on board the vessel I was in. They were hauled on board by the hair and treated in a most savage manner. When the chief came on board, he questioned them respecting the circumstances of their friends and demanded ransoms accordingly, from six thousand to six hundred dollars each. He ordered them a berth on deck at the after part of the vessel, where they had nothing to shelter them from the weather, which at this time was very variable, the days excessively hot and the nights cold with heavy rains. The town being plundered of everything valuable, it was set on fire and reduced to ashes by the morning. The fleet remained here three days, negotiating for the ransom of the prisoners, and plundering the fish tanks and gardens. During all this time, the Chinese never ventured from the hills, though there were frequently not more than a hundred ladrones on shore at a time, and I am sure the people on the hills exceeded ten times that number. October the 5th, the fleet proceeded up another branch of the river, stopping at several small villages to receive tribute, which was generally paid in dollars, sugar and rice, with a few large pigs roasted whole as presents for their joss, the idol they worship. Every person, on being ransomed, is obliged to present him with a pig or some fowls, which the priest offers him with prayers. It remains before him a few hours, and is then divided amongst the crew. Nothing particular occurred till the 10th, except frequent skirmishes on shore between small parties of ladrones and Chinese soldiers. They frequently obliged my men to go on shore, and fight with the muskets we had when taken, which did great execution, the Chinese principally using bows and arrows. They have matchlocks, but use them very unskillfully. On the 10th, we formed a junction with the Black Squadron, and proceeded many miles up a wide and beautiful river, 
passing several ruins of villages that had been destroyed by the black squadron. On the 17th, the fleet anchored abreast four mud batteries, which defended a town, so entirely surrounded with wood that it was impossible to form any idea of its size. The weather was very hazy, with hard squalls of rain. The ladrones remained perfectly quiet for two days. On the third day, the forts commenced a brisk fire for several hours. The ladrones did not return a single shot, but weighed in the night and dropped down the river. The reasons they gave for not attacking the town or returning the fire were that Joss had not promised them success. They are very superstitious and consult their idol on all occasions. If his omens are good, they will undertake the most daring enterprises. The fleet now anchored opposite the ruins of the town where the women had been made prisoners. Here we remained five or six days, during which time about a hundred of the women were ransomed. The remainder were offered for sale amongst the ladrones, for forty dollars each. The woman is considered the lawful wife of the purchaser, who would be put to death if he discarded her. Several of them leaped overboard and drowned themselves, rather than submit to such infamous degradation. The fleet then weighed and made sail down the river, to receive the ransom from the town before mentioned. As we passed the hill, they fired several shots at us, but without effect. The ladrones were much exasperated and determined to revenge themselves. They dropped out of reach of their shot and anchored. Every junk sent about a hundred men each on shore to cut paddy and destroy their orange groves, which was most effectually performed for several miles down the river. During our stay here, they received information of nine boats lying up a creek, laden with paddy. Boats were immediately dispatched after them. Next morning, these boats were brought to the fleet. Ten or twelve men were taken in them. As these had made no resistance, the chief said he would allow them to become ladrones if they agreed to take the usual oaths before Joss. Three or four of them refused to comply, for which they were punished in the following cruel manner. Their hands were tied behind their back, a rope from the masthead rove through their arms, and hoisted three or four feet from the deck, and five or six men flogged them with three rattans twisted together till they were apparently dead then hoisted them up to the masthead and left them hanging nearly an hour, then lowered them down and repeated the punishment till they died or complied with the oath. October the 20th in the night, an express boat came with information that a large mandarin fleet was proceeding up the river to attack us. The chief immediately weighed with 50 of the largest vessels and sailed down the river to meet them. About one in the morning they commenced a heavy fire till daylight, when an express was sent for the remainder of the fleet to join them. About an hour after, a counter-order to anchor came, the Mandarin fleet having run. Two or three hours afterwards, the chief returned with three captured vessels in tow, having sunk two, and eighty-three sail made their escape. The admiral of the Mandarins blew his vessel up by throwing a lighted match into the magazine as the ladrones were boarding her. She ran on shore, and they succeeded in getting twenty of her guns. In this action very few prisoners were taken. The men belonging to the captured vessels drowned themselves, as they were sure of suffering a lingering and cruel death if taken after making resistance. The admiral left the fleet in charge of his brother, the second in command, and proceeded with his own vessel towards Lantau. The fleet remained in this river, cutting paddy and getting the necessary supplies. On the 28th of October, I received a letter from Captain K, brought by a fisherman, who had told him he would get us all back for $3,000. He 
He advised me to offer three thousand, and if not accepted, extend it to four, but not farther, as it was bad policy to offer much at first, at the same time assuring me we should be liberated. Let the ransom be what it would. I offered the chief the three thousand, which he disdainfully refused, saying he was not to be played with, and unless they sent ten thousand dollars and two large guns with several casks of gunpowder, he would soon put us all to death. I wrote to Captain K, and informed him of the chief's determination, requesting if an opportunity offered to send us a shift of clothes, for which it may be easily imagined we were much distressed, having been seven weeks without a shift, although constantly exposed to the weather, and of course frequently wet. On the 1st of November the fleet sailed up a narrow river, and anchored at night within two miles of a town called Little Wampoa. In front of it was a small fort, and several mandarin vessels lying in the harbour. The chief sent the interpreter to me, saying I must order my men to make cartridges and clean their muskets, ready to go on shore in the morning. I assured the interpreter I should give the men no such orders, that they must please themselves. Soon after the chief came on board, threatening to put us all to a cruel death if we refused to obey his orders. For my own part I remained determined, and advised the men not to comply, as I thought by making ourselves useful we should be accounted too valuable. A few hours afterwards he sent to me again, saying that if myself and the quartermaster would assist them at the great guns, that if also the rest of the men went on shore and succeeded in taking the place, he would then take the money offered for our ransom and give them twenty dollars for every Chinaman's head they cut off. To these proposals we cheerfully acceded in hopes of facilitating our deliverance. Early in the morning, the forces intended for landing were assembled in rowboats, amounting in the whole to three or four thousand men. The largest vessels weighed and hauled in shore to cover the landing of the forces and attack the fort and mandarin vessels. About nine o'clock the action commenced and continued with great spirit for nearly an hour, when the walls of the fort gave way and the men retreated in the greatest confusion. The mandarin vessels still continued firing, having blocked up the entrance of the harbour to prevent the ladrone boats entering. At this the ladrones were much exasperated, and about three hundred of them swam on shore, with a short sword lashed close under each arm. They then ran along the banks of the river till they came abreast of the vessels, and then swam off again and boarded them. The Chinese thus attacked, leaped overboard, and endeavoured to reach the opposite shore. The ladrones followed, and cut the greater number of them to pieces in the water. They next towed the vessels out of the harbour, and attacked the town with increased fury. The inhabitants fought about a quarter of an hour, and then retreated to an adjacent hill, from which they were soon driven with great slaughter. After this the ladrones returned and plundered the town, every boat leaving it when laden. The Chinese on the hills perceiving most of the boats were off, rallied and retook the town, after killing near two hundred ladrones. One of my men was unfortunately lost in this dreadful massacre. The ladrones landed a second time, drove the Chinese out of the town, then reduced it to ashes, and put all their prisoners to death, without regarding either age or sex. I must not omit to mention a most horrid, though ludicrous, circumstance which happened at this place. The ladrones were paid by their chief ten dollars for every Chinaman's head they produced. One of my men, turning the corner of a street, was met by a ladron running furiously after a Chinese. He had a drawn sword in his hand, and two Chinaman's heads which he had cut off, tied by their tails, 
and slung round his neck. I was witness myself to some of them producing five or six to obtain payment. On the 4th of November, an order arrived from the Admiral for the fleet to proceed immediately to Lantau, where he was lying with only two vessels, and three Portuguese ships and a brig constantly annoying him. Several sail of Mandarin vessels were daily expected. The fleet weighed and proceeded towards Lantau. On passing the island of Lintin, three ships and a brig gave chase to us. The ladrones prepared to board, but night closing, we lost sight of them. I am convinced they altered their cause and stood from us. These vessels were in the pay of the Chinese government, and style themselves the Invincible Squadron, cruising in the river Tigris to annihilate the ladrones. On the fifth in the morning, the Red Squadron anchored in a bay under Lantau. The Black Squadron stood to the eastward. In this bay they hauled several of their vessels on shore to bream their bottoms and repair them. In the afternoon of the 8th of November, four ships, a brig and a schooner, came off the mouth of the bay. At first the pirates were much alarmed, supposing them to be English vessels come to rescue us. Some of them threatened to hang us to the masthead for them to fire at, and with much difficulty we persuaded them that they were Portuguese. The ladrones had only seven junks in a fit state for action. These they hauled outside, and moored them head and stern across the bay, and manned all the boats belonging to the repairing vessels ready for boarding. The Portuguese observing these manoeuvres hove to, and communicated by boats. Soon afterwards they made sail, each ship firing her broadside as she passed, but without effect, the shot falling far short. The ladrones did not return a single shot, but waved their colours and threw up rockets to induce them to come further in, which they might easily have done, the outside junks lying in four fathoms water which I sounded myself, though the Portuguese in their letters to Magao lamented there was not sufficient water for them to engage closer, but that they would certainly prevent their escaping before the Mandarin fleet arrived. On the 20th of November, early in the morning, I perceived an immense fleet of Mandarin vessels standing for the bay. On nearing us they formed a line, and stood close in. Each vessel, as she discharged her guns, tacked to join the rear and reload. They kept up a constant fire for about two hours, when one of their largest vessels was blown up by a firebrand thrown from a ladron junk, after which they kept at a more respectful distance, but continued firing without intermission till the 21st at night, when it fell calm. The ladrones towed out seven large vessels, with about two hundred rowboats to board them, but a breeze bringing up, they made sail and escaped. The ladrones returned into the bay and anchored. The Portuguese and Mandarines followed, and continued a heavy cannonading during that night and the next day. The vessel I was in had her foremast shot away, which they supplied very expeditiously by taking a mainmast from a smaller vessel. On the 23rd in the evening it again fell calm. The ladrones towed out fifteen junks in two divisions, with the intention of surrounding them, which was nearly effected, having come up with and boarded one, when a breeze suddenly sprung up. The captured vessel mounted twenty-two guns. Most of her crew leaped overboard. Sixty or seventy were taken immediately, cut to pieces and thrown into the river. Early in the morning the ladrones returned into the bay, and anchored in the same situation as before. The Portuguese and Mandarines followed, keeping up a constant fire. The ladrones never returned a single shot, but always kept in readiness to board, and the Portuguese were careful never to allow them an opportunity. On the 28th at night they sent in eight fire vessels, 
which if properly constructed must have done great execution, having every advantage they could wish for to effect their purpose. A strong breeze and tide directly into the bay, and the vessels lying so close together that it was impossible to miss them. On their first appearance the ladrones gave a general shout, supposing them to be mandarin vessels on fire, but were very soon convinced of their mistake. They came very regularly into the centre of the fleet, two and two, burning furiously. One of them came alongside of the vessel I was in, but they succeeded in booming her off. She appeared to be a vessel of about thirty tons. Her hold was filled with straw and wood, and there were a few small boxes of combustibles on her deck, which exploded alongside of us without doing any damage. The ladrones, however, towed them all on shore, extinguished the fire, and broke them up for firewood. The Portuguese claimed the credit of constructing these destructive machines, and actually sent a dispatch to the governor of Macau, saying they had destroyed at least one-third of the ladrones' fleet, and hoped soon to effect their purpose by totally annihilating them. On the 29th of November, the ladrones being already for sea, they weighed and stood boldly out, bidding defiance to the invincible squadron and imperial fleet, consisting of 93 war junks, six Portuguese ships, a brig and a schooner. Immediately the ladrones weighed, they made all sail. The ladrones chased them two or three hours, keeping up a constant fire. Finding they did not come up with them, they hauled their wind and stood to the eastward. Thus terminated the boasted blockade, which lasted nine days, during which time the ladrones completed all their repairs. In this action, not a single ladron vessel was destroyed, and their loss about thirty or forty men. An American was also killed, one of three that remained out of eight taken in a schooner. I had two very narrow escapes. The first, a twelve-pounder shot fell within three or four feet of me. Another took a piece out of a small brass swivel on which I was standing. The chief's wife frequently sprinkled me with garlic water, which they consider an effectual charm against shot. The fleet continued under sail all night, steering towards the eastward. In the morning they anchored in a large bay surrounded by lofty and barren mountains. On the 2nd of December I received a letter from Lieutenant Morgan, commander of the Honourable Company's cruiser Antelope, saying that he had the ransom on board, and had been three days cruising after us, and wished me to settle with the chief on the securest method of delivering it. The chief agreed to send us in a small gunboat, till we came within sight of the Antelope. Then the Compradore's boat was to bring the ransom and receive us. I was so agitated at receiving this joyful news, that it was with considerable difficulty I could scrawl about two or three lines to inform Lieutenant Morgan of the arrangements I had made. We were all so deeply affected by the gratifying tidings that we seldom closed our eyes, but continued watching day and night for the boat. On the 6th she returned with Lieutenant Morgan's answer, saying he would respect any single boat, but would not allow the fleet to approach him. The chief then, according to his first proposal, ordered a gunboat to take us, and with no small degree of pleasure we left the Ladron fleet about four o'clock in the morning. At one p.m. saw the antelope under all sail, standing toward us. The Ladron boat immediately anchored, and dispatched the Compradores boat for the ransom, saying that if she approached nearer, they would return to the fleet, and they were just weighing when she shortened sail, and anchored about two miles from us. The boat did not reach her till late in the afternoon, owing to the tides being strong against her. She received the ransom and left the antelope just before dark. A mandarin boat that had been lying concealed under the land and watching their manoeuvres gave chase to her, 
and was within a few fathoms of taking her when she saw a light, which the ladrones answered, and the mandarin hauled off. Our situation was now a most critical one. The ransom was in the hands of the ladrones, and the compradore dare not return with us for fear of a second attack from the mandarin boat. The ladrones would not remain till morning, so we were obliged to return with them to the fleet. In the morning the chief inspected the ransom, which consisted of the following articles. Two bales of superfine scarlet cloth, two chests of opium, two casks of gunpowder, and a telescope, the rest in dollars. He objected to the telescope not being new, and said he should detain one of us till another was sent, or a hundred dollars in lieu of it. The compradore, however, agreed with him for the hundred dollars. Everything being at length settled, the chief ordered two gunboats to convey us near the antelope. We saw her just before dusk, when the ladron boats left us. We had the inexpressible pleasure of arriving on board the antelope at 7 p.m., where we were most cordially received and heartily congratulated on our safe and happy deliverance from a miserable captivity, which we had endured for eleven weeks and three days. A few remarks on the origin, progress, manners, and customs of the ladrones. The ladrones are a disaffected race of Chinese that revolted against the oppressions of the mandarins. They first commenced their depredations on the western coast, Cochin, China, by attacking small trading vessels in rowboats, carrying from thirty to forty men each. They continued this system of piracy several years. At length their successors and the oppressive state of the Chinese had the effect of rapidly increasing their numbers. Hundreds of fishermen and others flocked to their standard, and as their number increased, they consequently became more desperate. They blockaded all the principal rivers, and captured several large junks, mounting from ten to fifteen guns each. With these junks they formed a very formidable fleet, and no small vessels could trade on the coast with safety. They plundered several small villages, and exercised such wanton barbarity as struck horror into the hearts of the Chinese. To check these enormities, the government equipped a fleet of forty imperial war junks, mounting from eighteen to twenty guns each. On the very first rencontre, twenty-eight of the imperial junks struck to the pirates. The rest saved themselves by a precipitate retreat. These junks, fully equipped for war, were a great acquisition to them. Their numbers augmented so rapidly that at the period of my captivity, they were supposed to amount to near 70,000 men, 800 large vessels, and nearly a 1,000 small ones, including rowboats. They were divided into five squadrons, distinguished by different colored flags, each squadron commanded by an admiral or chief, but all under the orders of Ah Juo Chei, Ching Yi Sao, their premier chief, a most daring and enterprising man, who went so far as to declare his intention of displacing the present Tartar family from the throne of China and to restore the ancient Chinese dynasty. This extraordinary character would have certainly shaken the foundation of the government had he not been thwarted by the jealousy of the second-in-command, who declared his independence and soon after surrendered to the mandarines with five hundred vessels on promise of a pardon. Most of the inferior chiefs followed his example, Ah Juo Chei, Ching Yi Sao, held out a few months longer, and at length surrendered with sixteen thousand men, on condition of a general pardon, and himself to be made a mandarin of distinction. The ladrones have no settled residence on shore, but live constantly in their vessels. The after part is appropriated to the captain and his wives, 
he generally has five or six. With respect to conjugal rights, they are religiously strict. No person is allowed to have a woman on board unless married to her according to their laws. Every man is allowed a small berth, about four feet square, where he stows with his wife and family. From the number of souls crowded in so small a space, it must naturally be supposed they are horridly dirty, which is evidently the case, and their vessels swarm with all kinds of vermin, rats in particular, which they encourage to breed, and eat them as great delicacies. In fact, there are very few creatures they will not eat. During our captivity, we lived three weeks on caterpillars boiled with rice. They are much addicted to gambling, and spend all their leisure hours at cards and smoking opium. End of section 16 Recording by Marian Martin